Well, good evening, it is good to see you again. Those of you who have come just for the second half, it's good to see you and we trust that God will bless us. I want to read um, the same verses I read this afternoon from Acts chapter 2, please, and verse 41. Now the main part of what I want to speak on is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but we will read that verse by verse when we come to it. So initially I just want to read these verses from Acts chapter 2. These verses may be familiar to most, but perhaps unfamiliar to some. So Acts chapter 2 verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now that will do for a reading, and we trust God will bless his word. Now earlier I spoke on the subject of fellowship from this text, and now I want to speak on the subject of the breaking of bread, or as it is also known, the Lord's Supper. And as I said earlier, the reason for speaking in these subjects is that back home in our Bible class we're going through some of these basic and fundamental truths in relation to the local assembly, the local church, and I want to share that with you here in Aberdeen. Now, it would be true to say that when you come to the New Testament, there is significant emphasis, and we place significant emphasis, upon two ordinances, baptism and the breaking of bread. Now, they are significant for a number of reasons, but it is interesting that both of them were commanded by the Lord Jesus. Both of them were also instituted by the Lord himself and participated in by the Lord Jesus. And that makes them rather special. Now the background, the historical background as you read about it in the the Bible in relation to the Lord's Supper is that it took place for the first time on the night before the death of the Lord Jesus on the night when the Lord Jesus was being betrayed. And the Lord Jesus had gathered his disciples into the upper room to eat the Passover meal. And during the Passover meal, which was, again, a significant occasion for the people who were Jewish, and it was an annual celebration, and it referred way back, as we're going to see, way back to the book of Exodus. And the remembrance of that had been maintained right throughout Jewish history, and on the night when that was taking place, the Lord Jesus took bread And he took a cup from that Passover meal. And he instituted a supper, a remembrance. So that as Christians, when we look at the great redemptive point in our history, unlike Israel, who at the Passover time remembered their redemption as a nation from national slavery into national liberty, We as Christians do not look back to an occasion like that. We don't look back to a national event. We don't commemorate a national event. We rather follow the instruction of the Lord Jesus and we look back to Calvary. We look back to that most important event in world history. And there we see our connection with redemption. In the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the shedding of of his precious blood. 
The Lord Jesus, in that night, he transformed what was a Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. So that now for the Christian, the Passover has no direct significance. It's interesting to study. It's informative. But for the Christian, the Lord's Supper is the memorial that the Lord Jesus himself instituted in relation to our redemption. And so we want to look at that for a short while. Now you read about it, and I've read about it in the book of the Acts. And let me just say, first of all, what the practice of the early church was in the book of Acts. Now it's important to be accurate when we look at this, because there's not too much to look at, which is surprising. The Lord's Supper evidently became part of the function of the local assembly in Jerusalem. And so the Lord Jesus instituted it before his death. But what we've read takes place after his death in Acts chapter 2. And you're reading about the first local assembly, the first local church. And part of the function of that assembly in Jerusalem after the ascension of the Lord Jesus was that they that gladly received his word were baptized. There were 3,000 souls added to that assembly and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, as I mentioned earlier, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So that when you read Acts chapter 2, it would appear on that reading that in the early days of the church, the Christians, due no doubt to the number of them, were meeting together in small numbers in Jerusalem in those very early days. It says that they shared their possessions, they shared hospitality, they broke bread, they, they shared their lives together. It was a most unusual time. When you think about it, it said that they had all things common. They sold possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They were continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were sharing food with singleness of heart. They were praising God. They had favour with all people. The Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. It was a tremendous time of blessing. But it, were un it was unusual times and days. You think of all of these people who had come up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover from all around Israel and beyond. And thousands of them had got saved. And they had stayed. They hadn't gone back. They needed to be housed. They needed to be fed. They needed to be supported. And that's what was happening there. They were sharing what they had. They were selling what they had. They were meeting the needs of that early dramatic influx of believers into that small community of believers local church it was an unusual time then you read through Acts and you keep reading and you keep reading and you don't read about the breaking of bread again until chapter 20 now that might be surprising if we didn't have 1 Corinthians chapter 11 but you read through, and then the only other occurrence in the book of Acts is not in Jerusalem at all. It's in quite a far off place called Troas. 
and time has moved on, the gospel has spread. There are many assemblies, and the Apostle Paul is passing through Troas, and he's spending time with the assembly in Troas. And then you have more mentions of the breaking of bread. It says that upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, this is in Troas, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, continuing his speech until midnight. Imagine that. Midnight. It seems that life had more of a normal pattern than these first heady days at Jerusalem. Life has settled down now. You have local churches and you have people with their normal daily routines. And the, the, the habit that they had fallen upon there in Troas and established in Troas, I should say, was that now the regularity of assembly life was being practiced. And upon the first day of the week, they came together to break bread and they heard the word of God preached as Paul passed through. So they've settled down to once a week gathering here, breaking bread on that day. And in chapter 20 and verse 11 it says this, When he was come up again and had broken bread, you remember Eutychus falls out the window and so on. When he was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. Now that's interesting because breaking of bread there and eating are two distinct things. So the breaking of bread is not a meal there. So it says in Troas that when he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, so he departed. So the breaking of bread is clearly something distinct from a meal on that occasion. It takes place after midnight and after Paul had preached and was part of a long night of fellowship. And that's all we have from the book of Acts. That's all we have. So what do we learn from the Gospels and Acts in relation to the breaking of bread? The Lord institutes a supper of remembrance at the Passover meal. He explains its significance and he asks his disciples to remember him by carrying out this request. The Christians at Jerusalem were obedient to the command of the Lord and they broke bread and did so as part of other spiritual activity. At Troas, the assembly are coming together on the first day of the week to break bread, and in addition they have fellowship and teaching, and they also eat a meal together as they've come together, which is no surprise really. And when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they were having a meal as well, and it appears that they had replaced the Passover meal with some other type of meal, and the breaking of bread seems to be, uh, have been associated with that in some way. The Christians no longer are eating the Passover. That's finished. But the church at Corinth still come together, we'll see, to partake in the Lord's Supper. It's interesting that Paul refers to their gathering together on the first day of the week in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians in relation to the taking up of an offering as well. So what you learn from the Acts and what you learn from the Gospels is that there is no instruction from the Lord as to how to do this. None. There is no instruction from the Lord in the Gospels as to when to do this. Or where to do this. He only in the Gospels speaks of the symbols and their significance. Then you come to the book of the Acts and you have two different examples given. One in the early unusual days of Jerusalem. Then in the more settled situation of Troas. But again there is no apostolic instruction. Just example of how, when, where. But then you come into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have Paul teaching about the Lord's Supper and he's giving corrective and explanatory instruction 
about it. He teaches the meaning and the spiritual implications of our conduct in the Lord's Supper. Now if you would, could you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll read about what Paul taught the assembly at Corinth. Rather than read the whole section, I'm just going to read the verse and then deal with it and then read the next verse and deal with it and we'll go down it in that fashion. So verse number 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now if you notice in chapter 11 and verse 2, he has praised them. But here he cannot praise them. In verse 2, he praises them for their observance of the symbolism of headship. He praises them for that. The sisters were covering their heads. The brethren were not covering their heads. They didn't fully understand why, but they were observing it. He says, I praise you for observing it, but I want to instruct you as to why and the significance of it. When you come to the Lord's Supper, he cannot do that. Because they were not observing the Lord's Supper as their conduct required to be corrected. And he'll correct their conduct. So there is no praise. He says you're coming together not for the better but for the worse. In other words, listen, the way you're behaving in the Lord's Supper, it would be better if you'd stayed at home rather than come and gather. It would have been more beneficial that you weren't actually coming together because of your conduct. So instead of your gatherings being helpful and edifying, they are actually destructive. Now when you read the conduct, then you understand why he says such a strong thing. Because they had degraded the breaking of bread into what was known as a love feast, but they had also added in glutton, gluttony, drunkenness, and indulgence and selfishness. And these things were destructive amongst the people of God. So then look at verse 18. He says, For... First of all, when you come together in the church, he says, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now, he says, when you come together in the church, now, use at this point, folks, for the sake of the young, but for the sake of us all, let us remind ourselves, if we already know this, that that never refers to a building nor a location. When you come together in the church is a reference to an assembly of people who are in fellowship with each other in terms of what I said earlier, in terms of local assembly fellowship. And so this assembly, this church, this gathering is in relation to people. So what he's going to speak about about the Lord's Supper is in the context of the gathering of the Lord's people. He says, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions and I partly believe it. Now, he says, and the grammar seems to indicate, I keep on hearing again and again. The word divisions is the word from which we get schisms, and it refers basically to a difference of opinion. But when the church is coming together, instead of uniting and fellowshipping, they were arguing and dividing. Now, Corinth was a divided church on more than one level. There were social divisions, theological divisions, there was lots of arguments, and it was very destructive. There was an evidence of carnality and childishness and fleshliness and all the rest of it. They were proud, they had lots of problems. And in chapter 3 and verse 3 he says, you are carnal. 
And how do I know, he says, because there is envying, strife and divisions. And when that is present, there is carnality. Notice verse 19. He explains why God allows such in amongst his people. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now the word heresy comes from a word, a root word, that stresses the idea of choice. It simply means a choice of a group who hold a given opinion. Sometimes it's translated in the Gospels as the word sect. It's used in a neutral sense in Acts 24 when it talks about the sect of the Nazarene. It's used in a bad sense in Galatians 5.20 when it refers to one of the works of the flesh as heresies. It has, there it has to do with selfish contention. So he's saying, listen, there must be also heresies among you. Selfish contention. Divisions, carnality, strife. Why does God allow that? That little expression, if you're interested, there must be, is used often when God allows something which will ultimately work out his purpose. He allows something which will work out his purpose. For example, it was necessary that Jesus suffered and died and rose again to work out his purpose. It was necessary that the Lord Jesus went to Jerusalem. So God is allowing something, something is taking place that will ultimately, it will not be a good thing, but it will be allowed to work out his purpose. And what was that? That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So that he is displaying the true character of people amongst in the assembly by allowing problems to exist. And I found this that you never know the true character of people when everything is great. It's when the pressure's on. It's when people are under pressure that their true character is manifested. It's when problems come that you see people in the true light of what they actually are. Because when everything is nice and easy and good, everybody gets along. The Apostle Paul is saying, God allows these things amongst you so that the true character of people in the assembly might be manifested. You'll know the true character of those, those who are true believers and those who are carnal believers and those who are not believers will be seen. So then, look at verse 20. He's told them, he knows this trouble, he's told them why God allows the trouble, and now he's going to focus in on the trouble. He says, when you come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now that must have been a blow. Because they thought they were coming together to break bread, and Paul says you're not. It doesn't matter what you do. You are not breaking bread biblically. You are not remembering the Lord. You think you are. You're going through a process. You are going through a ritual. But the ritual has no meaning because of your conduct. At it. It has no significance. This is not the Lord's Supper. Now just stop with that thought for a moment. I could come to Bridge of Weir tomorrow and sit and take a loaf into my hands and break it and drink from that cup 
with sin in my heart and broken relationships all around me and think that I'm remembering the Lord. Paul says you're not. This is not the Lord's supper. This is not what the Lord asked for. This is not obedience to him. That is just ritual. There has to be reality in what we do. So he says, that's the problem. They're gathering together to share the Lord's Supper, but they're only going through a ritual because there's no reality behind it. Look at verse 21. He explains that bold statement by saying, notice the connecting word for, for in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, one's hungry and another is drunken. So he said, look, here is why it's not the Lord's Supper. Because you're bringing your own food to a feast, and instead of celebrating unity and fellowship, you're actually displaying disunity and selfishness. So the character of the local church in Jerusalem that had all things common 20 years down the road, which is what it is now, it's the opposite. Their gatherings aren't an expression of fellowship. Their gatherings are an expression of disunity and sin, which selfishness is. It's no wonder he says this is not the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 22. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. You see, the church is one place where rich and poor ought to be able to fellowship together and love each other. And he says, listen, if you're going to flaunt your wealth, behave like that, shame other people, stay at home. Stay at home and have your food. Don't bring it. He doesn't praise them. Now, having identified the problem look at the positive instruction from verse 23 down let us learn what is the Lord's Supper we've learned what is not the Lord's Supper let us learn what is the Lord's Supper for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread first point is this he received it of the Lord This was direct revelation of the Lord to Paul. This is not human opinion. This is not tradition of one church denomination against another church denomination or tradition or something like this. This is not some kind of perversion of the Passover and the Jewish celebration um, moulded into a Christian context or anything like that. This is direct revelation from the Lord. I received of the Lord, he says... That which also I delivered unto you. Now 1 Corinthians is almost certainly written before the four Gospels in terms of chronology. So this would be the first statement of God in print, when well, he didn't print it, in written form, regarding the, the Lord's Supper. And he says, I've already taught you this stuff. When I was with you, I taught you this. This is not new, but I want to remind you of what you already know. So he says the same night in which he was betrayed. He wants to set the historical context. Because that is a great deal of meaning. Now he doesn't mention the Passover. Which I would have mentioned. I would probably have said, you remember that last night? The last Passover in Jewish history before its fulfilment. 
I mean, a, a Passover celebration of the Passover lamb, which had been looking forward to, to the lamb of God, and the fulfillment of it takes place at Calvary. You remember the last time we participated of the Passover, it would be etched into their Jewish minds as a point in history. doesn't mention it. That's not the historical context. It is the context of betrayal. It was the night in which he was betrayed. Here is the most beautiful ordinance the Lord has ever given for us as his people. Said against it is the terrible hatred and cruelty of a betrayal. Which just makes his instruction shine all the brighter. He wants us to remember him and instituted it when he was being betrayed on that dark night. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. Now let me explain what happened. Just imagine, put yourself in that upper room in your mind if you would. Imagine this Passover night. This actually happened. Remember this. This is history. Now understand this, that there were four cups on the table, four cups drunk on a Passover meal. There was a, a kind of ceremony that took place. The first cup was called the Blessed Cup. It was always red wine in it and it was symbolic of the blood of the Lamb at the Passover in Egypt. Then they had bitter herbs dipped in a fruit sauce and they ate that. And after that they would sing. They sang, sang some of the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113-114 which gave an explanation of the meaning which, which followed an explanation of the meaning of the Passover. So you have these four cups. First cup is taken, reminding them of the blood of the lamb, the bitter herbs, the sauce, the psalms, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114, and the host of the Passover meal would give an explanation of its meaning. Then they took the second cup. After the second cup, the leader of the meal would take unleavened bread, and he would bless God, break it and hand it out to everybody, and that marked the beginning of the meal. The breaking of the bread marked the beginning of the meal. Then the Passover meal was eaten, and when the Passover meal was done, the host prayed and took the third cup, after which they sang the rest of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. After they'd sung all of that, before they left, the fourth cup was taken, and this was to celebrate the coming kingdom. Now somewhere along the line, at the point of the unleavened bread being broken before the meal, the Lord Jesus took the bread, symbolising the exodus, broke it and said, this bread is my body. When the meal was finished, because it says after he supped, and that is after they had the dinner. When the meal was finished, he then took the cup and instituted and gave his instruction that we let. That's the historical context. That's how it started. One of the cups of the Passover, likely the second, but we can't be sure. It doesn't really matter which in that sense. He took the cup, sorry, after he'd sucked, likely the third, and the bread, the unleavened bread taken and passed amongst his disciples with the instruction of Christ. So notice verse 24. So it was during that it says, And when he had given thanks, for he was the host, 
he broke it and said take eat this is my body broken or given for you this do in remembrance of me now mark this the bread is not his body it represents his body you say well how so because he was there and he was there in his body so he took bread and said this is my body evidently it wasn't his body it symbolised his body he often used figurative metaphorical uh, language I am the door it wasn't a literal door um, I am the field is the world the field literally wasn't a world so he used that and does so again when he takes the bread he says this is my body this symbolises my body and he gave thanks from which we get the expression Eucharist and he broke the bread so that all could share from that common loaf and the body to the Jewish mind represented the total person the whole incarnate life of Christ I was thinking about what Bert said about bread earlier and thinking about the Lord Jesus and thinking about the significance of what he mentioned about bread and the Lord Jesus saying this is my body given cast your bread upon the water the Lord Jesus did that when he broke that bread and gave himself this speaks of the whole incarnation this too, eat the bread in remembrance of me and so the importance of this lies in the obedience to what he has told us to do and in our engagement with that in our minds by so doing we call him into our consciousness we fill him and we remember him then in verse 25 he says after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped that's when they had had the, the supper the dinner saying this cup is the new testament in my blood this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me so this cup is taken and passed around and they've instructed to take a sip of the cup this cup is the new covenant I hope I've got time to deal with this very briefly the new promise in my blood we hear a lot about covenant theology these days and a lot I would suggest of a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches in relation to covenant when you go to the Old Testament the old covenant as it's described was ratified remember a covenant's an agreement was ratified by the blood of animals the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Christ listen when you sign an agreement when you sign a contract you ratify the agreement I should say you make the agreement you draw the contract you sign the contract and you ratify the agreement in the Old Testament God said to Israel he said many things by way of promise I will lead you to the promised land I'll even pass over you I'll not you know, bring death to your firstborn lots of promises made you remember that their uh, part was to take the blood of a lamb and put it in the doorpost and the lintel it was like their signature to the agreement throughout the Old Testament the people had to continue to come back to God again and again and again and keep shedding the blood of animals why? they keep, kept having to renew their commitment in confession and repentance and again and again and again renew their commitment to God but that is finished 
God's new covenant is not based upon sacrifices that have to be renewed. It is based upon the sacrifice of Christ, which is a once-for-all sacrifice, never requiring renewal. One sacrifice forever, and that is Christ. One ratification of one new covenant, one new promise, one new agreement. Someone wrote this, the Hebrews repeatedly shed blood, constantly saying, I'm sorry, I bind myself again to your promise. I've sinned again, please forgive me. Here's my sacrifice again. God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel. And it's going to be different. You can read about it and I don't have time to deal with it in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 32 to 34. And he says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And then he, he gives the terms of that new covenant. The internalization of God's law, soul devotion to God, universal knowledge of God, forgiveness of sin and iniquity, Israel's perpetual national existence, provision that Jerusalem is to be permanently rebuilt and so forth. And that covenant was ratified with the blood of Christ. And the old covenant ratified by the blood of animals, the new by the blood of Christ. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. You say, well, what's that got to do with us? We're not Israel, and neither we are. And therein lies the mistake of many. We are distinct from Israel. We are part of the church. And yet the church, partaking of the spiritual blessings, not the national promises, but the spiritual blessings of that new covenant. And you come into the New Testament and see that they flow out to New Testament Christians and you read into 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 and Hebrews 7 and 8 and Hebrews chapter 13 and it's right through the book of Hebrews that we've been brought into some of these blessings the spiritual blessings of that new covenant with the death of Christ key to securing these blessings and so we remember the shedding of that precious blood and we remember the ratification of that new covenant in the Lord's Supper. We remember the spiritual blessings of the new covenant which flow out to us. The internalization of God's word and God himself and forgiveness of sins and iniquities and the remembrance of them no more and so forth. He says this, remember me, take the cup. Remember the shedding of my blood. Remember the giving of my body. Take bread and take a cup. And he says you will do this. And as often as you do it, you do show forth the Lord's death till he come. As often. Regularity is stressed. As often. How often is not stated in this section. Every time we take the cup, we remember his incarnation and death and the blessings of that new covenant. Regularity. Temporary proclamation, that's also stressed. It's only until he comes. 
The old brethren used to say this and it stuck in my mind and it's true. I can remember them saying after the breaking of bread, once more and once less. Once more we have done this but once less because we only do it until the Lord comes. And then we will not require bread in a cup for we will see the reality of what is symbolised in these things. When we see him and his body that was given and we see the marks that show us the blood that was shed. We'll see him. He said, as often as you do this, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come. Now it'd be great if he just stopped there. But he doesn't stop there. He then speaks about the necessity of being in the right spiritual condition to partake of the Lord's Supper. Therein lay the problem in Corinth. Look at verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Remember that this is not a ceremony. This is a personal remembrance. There's something intimately personal about this. It is me remembering my Lord. It is not some abstract ceremony that we go through every week. And the bitterness that I may have toward another Christian in any way, shape or form. Unconfessed sin and unrepented sin. Means that I am doing this unworthily. Unworthily. My spiritual condition is not consistent with what I am doing when I break bread. Therefore, I do it unworthily. And in this context, the unspiritual condition has to do with broken relationships and selfish behaviour. It hasn't to do with some of the things that we might associate it with. We are not worthy to break bread if we're behaving towards each other in a selfish fashion and in a divisive manner. That's the context. And the consequence is this, you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? We are treating the Lord in an unworthy manner and therefore become guilty of that kind of ill treatment. Someone wrote this, somebody who tramples with the feet of indifference or sinfulness, the body and blood, as represented in the elements of the Lord's Supper, is guilty of dishonouring, mocking, treating with indifference and hypocrisy the person of Christ. How we treat this supper is how we treat the Lord Jesus. For he is symbolised in the supper. It's a real encounter with Christ. It's a real remembrance. It's personal. We say he's there. We're remembering him. It's about us and him. And so in verse 28, as I finish, he says this, but let a man examine himself. 
So perhaps your first instinct is, well, I could never remember the Lord because I'll never be in a right state. And, you know, it comes Sunday morning and I've got too many things to confess and so I'll just sit at home. He says, that's not an option either. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The answer is not stay away. The answer is make sure you don't require to stay away. It means rigorous self-examination, which we all should do anyway. Our life, our motives, our attitudes towards the Lord, towards his people. Be certain that we're not careless and flippant and unrepentant and hypocrites. And so Paul says this, in fact, the Lord had taken severe dealings with the assembly at Corinth. And if they would not remove themselves from the Lord's Supper, he stepped in and removed them. And you say, but these were very early days in church testimony. These were the transition. This was not really the very early days of church testimony. You're 20 years down the line. This is not Acts chapter 2. And the Lord intervenes. Such was the disgraceful behaviour in the Lord's Supper. And if they will not sort it out, he does. And he removes them. Sobering. What a privilege it is. There's those in fellowship who gather as part of the function of a local assembly to break bread and remember the Lord Jesus. Let us value it. If you don't break bread, if you're not in fellowship in a local assembly, remember this. The Lord Jesus asked personally for you to remember him. It perhaps is time that you thought you should maybe seek fellowship and break bread with the Lord's people in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Trust his word.